When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is John Hammond and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Welcome back yet again to another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, brought to you by the good people at Pantheon Podcast. We are pleased, as always, to be part of this vast and always expanding Pantheon Podcast network of wise music swamis doing cool music podcasts. We're available on Spotify, iTunes, and over 40 other podcast platforms. Very, very Googleable. I suppose. Um, and yes, this is episode 133. I'm calling this epic drum intros. Um, I don't want to go, uh, I don't want to let on how far down the rabbit hole this has gone. There's there's probably going to be another um, drum part uh, episode coming up. But what I've done is I've decided to follow up episode 132, which was on drum hooks and uh and go with something where we're going to look at some of those iconic uh intros that you hear that are that are essentially drum solos or things done on drums and the motivations why they are done this way um because yeah again i don't want to go too far down to it but i've got a whole list of uh of other things that are slightly different than this but let's let's focus for now on the idea of intros now our intro is a hook that's an interesting question i think i think an intro can be a type of hook it's more like a one-time hook by definition um yeah. Is it a hook? Um, the the interesting thing about that is, is it something that hooks you into the song? And I suppose it is a hook. It definitely is something that snaps you to attention. Uh, it's it's usually fairly exciting. Um, although, uh, as I say, in future episodes, we're going to have some drum intros that aren't particularly exciting. It's just like the song starts with the drums kind of thing. Uh, but for now, these are these are all fairly exciting ones. So in a sense, they are a hook. They hook you in, but they're not a recurring hook or part of the structure of a song uh, like uh, our examples in last episode. So again, episode 133, epic 
drum intros. Uh, let's start with our first one. And by the way, um, I also, again, got a lot of help from my uh, South African connection, Neil Miller. I had a long list of these things and I emailed him, said, hey, do you want to add to this? And he, as as usual, added a lot of cool examples. So uh, some of the examples, uh, well, actually, you know what? The funny thing is most of those examples are going to show up in following episodes because this is very focused on some pretty obvious ones. Uh, but, you know, hopefully we're going to say some cool things about them but not a lot of honorable mentions here a few uh, but again this is more about the actual examples in this episode uh, okay so let's take a listen to our first one this is deep purple with fireball Right, so there you've got the great Ian Pace. This is considered one of the greatest, uh, earliest ones of these of all time. I wanted to put these in chronological order. So Fireball comes out uh, July 1971. It's the third proper Mark II album we've got, or sorry, the second we've got in rock. Actually, we've got the classical album plus in rock. Uh, and then we have Fireball, and then they follow that up with Machine Head, which is the big classic with all the hits on it, right? Uh, but but Fireball is really interesting. So you so you first get that whooshing sound, and then you've got uh, Ian going into this sort of manic, cool drum solo to start off the song. And the song, as we've discussed in previous episodes, is considered one of the uh, early key proto thrash songs, I suppose, along with maybe even something like a, like a Hard Loving Man. Uh, off of uh, off of in rock but this is a song that stays fast and stays cool and ian stays really exciting throughout the whole song but the neat thing about this is that um ian is one of these steadfast single bass pedal single bass drum players but he is an artist and he basically decided that to get this right i'm gonna have to do this double bass thing and uh and it's like okay i'll i'll uh, i'll try double bass on this so what happened was I'll, I'll i'll give it to you in his words so he said um uh the the very first time pace had experimented with two bass drums the song has basically uh, had basically been written and i knew what i was trying to achieve with the drum intro being a one bass drum player i was trying to find a way of simulating what would happen with two bass drum uh with uh, with two bass drums. I initially started by trying to play all the notes of that double bass drum pattern with just my left foot. I could just about get the speed, but I couldn't get any power to make it sound convincing. Luckily for us, the night before, The Who had been recording in the same studio and Keith Moon's kit was still there. The roadies hadn't taken it away. So I took one of his bass drums out of the case and stuck it next to mine. And for the first time, I just played the pattern with the two kicks that gave the power and the feel to set the song up. It's not a difficult part, but it's a great part for that song and he's very groovy on this uh the way he goes into the uh, the the um the fill part he's very fluid so this is definitely uh you know not not the first not really the first time he's been showcased uh you know he was showcased pretty pretty nicely on in rock as well uh but this is definitely his big showcase and there's and there's future showcase things that happen on machine head and uh, and moving forward so he's a real integral part of uh of the band here um all right let's move on to our second example take a listen to this this is rainbow with stargazer 
All right. So as as you're seeing, I mean, this is this is an interesting episode in that in that all of our clips start at the beginning of the song. That's that's what's going to happen. That's why they are intros. Uh, so Stargazer is a is a very key one in that you've got this veteran drummer who's coming from these these sort of disparate, more musicologist type bands, uh, except for Bedlam, I suppose, uh, into into Rainbow. He's making his presence known. And this is Richie letting him make his presence known, right? So this is this is Richie saying, "I want this to be a band. You guys are all exciting players. I want you to, um, you know, show us what you've got," kind of thing. Uh, so what Cozy said at the time, uh, he was speaking with Chris Welch back in '76. He says, "I'm now giving the drums all the power I should have done two years ago." With Jeff Beck, it was impossible to whack the hell out of the drums because it wasn't that sort of band. Now I'm in a band where I can do what I want to do and unleash the power, exclamation mark. They say Richie is a difficult man to work with, and he is at times, but he leaves me alone and lets me get on with it, which suits me. He's very demanding. He knows exactly what he wants and won't settle for anything less. Uh, hang on here. Let's see. Jeff Beck, on the other hand, brilliant guitar player, very difficult to know what he's thinking. You can expect to know what's going on in a guy's head. Uh, so consequently, it's very di- difficult to play with him. Some nights would be great and other nights he'd just uh, go off on a tangent. It was very hard to keep up. All guitar players are prone to that. But with Richie, we've got on very well since the band has started. But I hate to think what will happen when we do have an argument. See, here's the thing about Cozy. I mean, he's he's very he's very he was very outspoken, and uh, you know he was definitely an integral part. He was more outspoken than Tony Iommi in in certain uh, respects. So he was an integral part of Black Sabbath when he was in Black Sabbath, uh, but he was definitely an integral part of uh, Rainbow as well. Um, and he had the big eighteen twelve overture drum solo, so he was a very showy drummer. He was a hard hitting guy, but. You know, I've often been uh, prone to sort of, um, you know, disparage him a little bit because I I don't think he ever got that great a drum sound. And that's partially his fault and partially maybe um, producers, part, you know, Martin Birch, whatever. Um, you know, it, it was it was looking for a dry Bonham-esque sort of thing. Um, but I don't know if he particularly achieved that too often. I've often said, uh, and you know, this is probably going to show up in a future episode, but I've often said that my favorite thing he ever did was the intro to uh, Lost in Hollywood, which is just a, you know, a, a kind of a rapid fire snare thing. Uh, but obviously Stargazer, this is very, very musical, very hooky. Um, you know, it just, it just has the highs and the lows, the kind of the back and forth. It, it, it feels like a ping ponging tennis match sort of thing. It's just a really cool intro. Um, Richie does that really, you know, smart thing of doing the, uh, the scrape on the guitar all through it sort of thing. And, uh, and what a dramatic way to open up one of the eight minute songs on that side of rising. Right. Uh, let's see, what else does he say here? Uh, he's been very good. He more or less lets me have a free hand. I like it this way. It's nice to work with someone as good as Richie and good for me to get back into it again after being off a while. The first time we were, uh, we went into the rehearsal room in LA. I went bananas. I just blasted away for two hours and then it all fell into place. He had tried some English and American guys, and basically they were all frightened of him. I'm not frightened of anybody, and I just went and steamed in. Exactly the same story with Jeff. I went down to the audition, and there were literally 25 drummers all there with a kit that was supplies. Is it my turn now? Tapping away very lightly, I thought, sought all this. Slung the kit out, got mine in, and sat in right, and said, right, you want to play? Let's play. 
you've got to be a bit arrogant if you're a drummer. You've got to give them a kick up the ass. It was the same with Richie. With a heavy rock guitar player, you know they want a hard, solid foundation. If they don't get that, you're wa you're wasting their time. But you still have to pace yourself, which is very difficult in our show. It's an hour and a half of torture. Yeah, it's painful, all right? My hands are really suffering. I've drawn blood many times. John Bonham is of the same ilk, and I lived in Birmingham for a while and met my wife there. I got to know John and Robert really well. John and I are probably the only two drummers in England who play in that style. I like him because he doesn't play too many fills, but when he does, it means something. So that's pretty interesting. Um, again, I think you got you've you've got a John Bonham sound, which isn't isn't not isn't necessarily the greatest thing. I think uh, Cozy lacks a John Bonham's sense of groove, so I don't think you really get that out of him. Um, but he has these very iconic parts. And there is none more iconic than uh, Stargazer, of course. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. All right, back again here on History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff, episode 133, Epic Drum Intros. Uh, let's take a listen to our next selection, and we shall discuss. This is Judas Priest with Exciter. So here we've got Les Binks, uh, awesome, awesome addition to the band. Uh, Simon Phillips wouldn't join the band. Uh, he had other commitments, but he's also the same kind of a drummer. Uh, Les Binks really shows what he's got here. And again, he's, he's entering into this band and the band uh, allows him to have his say, has his piece, even though he never really felt like a big member of the band. But what an iconic uh, way to kick off this heavy song exciter as you've heard in this clip once once the song starts and the verse starts uh he really he really sort of sits back and and the drum part becomes very uninteresting uh but then it picks up again so it kind of ebbs and swells so it's almost like he pulls out of the way he's had his say he's had his fun and now it's time to get down to business of listening to Rob Halford, essentially. Uh, but there are other uh, amazing parts in the song. Uh, again, it's very Simon Phillips-esque in terms of even the, uh, you know, the high-strung trebly production and the very sort of fuss-pot Tom-Tom uh, uh, sounds. Uh, but let's see, what, what does he say? In my book, um, I, I interviewed him for this. Uh, let's see. So he... Yeah, I, so I've got these two paired Judas Priest books, and this is all from, uh, what is the first one called? A Decade of Domination. So that, that looks at 1974 to 84. But I interviewed Les, and he says, uh, yes, well, the, uh, we, we talked about Billy Cobham. He says, well, yes, the thing about Billy Cobham is I was from a jazz background, especially in my younger days. Billy is in his 70s now, so he's a lot more restrained, shall I say, in his playing. But back when he was with Mahavishnu Orchestra with John McLaughlin, he was very, very fiery. He had a lot more fire in his playing than he had these days, has these days. And he has, uh, he was one of the few drummers from a jazz back background to use double bass drums. I've never been a huge jazz fan, but Cobham I could listen to all day. If you listen to his solo album, Spectrum, the double bass drum playing there is pretty much up there with the metal stuff, you know. But looking back at Exciter, 
Specifically, it was really inspired by Mr. Ian Pace and the song Fireball. That's the first time I ever heard Ian playing two bass drums, and that surprised me because he normally just played a single bass drum, so I wanted to do something along those lines. And it was just one day at a sound check with the band. It just came into my head, and it just launched into what ended up being the opening drum pattern for Exciter. It was just a spur-of-the-moment improvised thing that I came up with, and Glenn's ears picked up when he heard me playing it. He asked me to play it again, and he joined in with the guitar riff, and that was the birth of that song. Everything else was developed from that. So, yes, uh, this is this is the idea of an intro being an introduction almost to the this new member of the band. It's a super exciting introduction to the, uh, to the album. You know, as drummers would quip, uh, they would say, uh, you know, uh, unlike piano, nobody had to make you go uh, do your drum practice, do your drum lesson sort of thing, which is a funny thing um, because when you have drums as an intro to the album, you know, you just know that that everybody else in the band also feels the excitement of a, of a great drum part uh, c- coming into a record. So I, I thought that was kind of a, so this is kind of a, uh, definitely a cool one where, you know the album is has just got this extra bell and whistle on it and it's this this wild you know double bass cool drum part before this stuff really was uh was much of a big deal all right let's move on to our next selection this is van halen with hot for teacher Okay, man, this is this is a crazy one. So, um, so I did a bunch of research on this and read a whole bunch of stuff on the internet. Um, various drummers talking about it, studio guys talking about it. There's a lot of mystery around this drum part. Um, there's a mystery whether it is Alex playing along to a pre-recorded syndrome part. There is mystery as to what is syndromes versus what is acoustic tom tom versus what is bass drum because his bass drums basically were were tuned up so high that they sounded like that that large floor tom that would be to his right um there is a discussion about so so there's discussion what is actual double bass drum and what is actual syndromes on this uh there's also some mystery um, where people started going and looking at live shows and realizing he wasn't really playing uh, you know the entire the the entire intro, and then wondering whether um, you know how much of it was an actual studio creation. I even read a long post that said that it's possibly Terry Bozio doing this whole thing. Uh, pretty crazy. So so I don't know. I I don't know how much credence there is to that. This is the first I heard of it. Looking at it yesterday, but anyways, um, you know, Alex is uh, definitely a very hooky drummer, and he and he gets to showcase all over the place. Uh, there's of course, as is, there's his work in Get Up. There's his work in Loss of Control, Pleasure Dome, even right now, which is kind of like an up tempo ballad. But he's great in that. He's great in Girl Gone Bad, of course, as well. Um, but let's see. Let me see if I could give you a few of these quotes. Um, so here's some some uh, just disparate parts here. This four measure repeated section is heard at the tail end of the Alex, uh, Alex Van Halen's famous drum solo. Right before I can see the most distinctive element 
of this rock shuffle is the ride pattern. Rather than playing the conventional first and last notes of the triple set in rhythm with the bass drums, Alex plays the first and second triplets or beats on one and three. Here's the section played at more modern, a uh, moderate 170 BPM. Yeah, so there's this really cool analysis by this drummer, uh, Aaron Edgar, that goes through the whole thing. And he does an amazing job of it, but then a after I watched that, which seemed very convincing, I started reading other stuff that kind of like intimated that it was done a different way. Um, let's see. So here's, this is interesting. Somebody says this drum intro is mentioned in Rick Beato's top 20 drum intros. He thinks Alex Van Halen used Simmons pads for the kicks and toms, uh, but doesn't elaborate. I stick with the belief that it was done live in the studio because after all, he's got to play it live in concert, which again, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a truncated thing. Now, this is pretty interesting. There was an engineer that says, I have heard the master tape files from this session. Uh, in person in a post-production studio. And you, as you might expect, the engineer at the session had come across the master files illegally. The recording starts off with the Simmons pads playing the alternate Herta licks. Uh, that's sort of a, um, a, a semi-paradiddle type um, drum pattern and whatnot. And the drum tracks uh, and the bass drum played with feet. Okay, this is in brackets. It's a little hard to understand. It's not explained that well. Uh, let's see. The recording starts off with the Simmons pads playing the alternating Herta licks and whatnot. Then the drum tracks, in brackets, the bass drums played with feet, come in over that. So that is kind of clear. So you hear, you, so it's it's apparently a fusing. You know, again, this is, there, there's, there's a possibility of double tracking. There's a possibility of just being very ambidextrous and playing all this at once. Uh, there's, there's a possibility also of playing a, a very unison uh, thing as well. Let's see. The Simmons pads were on a separate audio track. It would appear that the bass drums were recorded on top of it, i.e. along with the Simmons track. After the Simmons track and bass drums go for a bit, the tom notes appear on the drum tracks. The Simmons track ends when the cymbals enter and the guitar solo begins. So at that point, you're hearing a more of a a clear cut thing going on here. You know, so so the funny thing about Hot for Teacher is again um, the way that all those sounds are so similar to each other, but also that it's a double bass shuffle, which is kind of an an, an Alex trademark, and just the fact that. Uh, it doesn't sound perfectly, perfectly in time. It sounds a little bit sloppy, and that's because you're hearing these different layers on it. Um, and again, uh, you know, where do these layers? Uh, what what is the extent of layering uh, going on, or like like a second person involved, or a second drum track? It's still a little bit up for um, uh, discussion. Let's see. Obviously, the Simmons track was recorded separately from the drum tracks. It was likely recorded first, and then the double bass and toms were laid over it. Sorry to destroy the mystique. Uh, and then someone says Simmons, then Simmons and bass drum, then just bass drums. Let's see. Uh, then someone says, I saw Vans doing a video, but he overplayed it and got it wrong. I think the way it's played is playing it on floor toms first. Then when it gets a little louder, that's doubling up with the bass drum. The argument seems to be that because Alex Van Halen used an electronic kit when he recorded it, it's hard to distinguish the floor toms and bass drums from each other. Then again, I don't know. Hope it's helped in some way. Do check out the Van Halen video, though, because it's awesome what he's playing. So that's pretty interesting. All right. Let's move on to our next selection here. You know, by the way, um, I have another very similar episode to this, but it's it's subtly different. It is, I believe I did an episode all that that is strictly about 
double bass drumming. So you can check that one out as well. Plus the last episode we just did, which was on drum hooks. But I hope I'm uh, mentioning and going deeper into a few things here and not just talking about the, uh, you know, the double bass drum story, which I've, which I've uh, talked about before. All right. Um, take a listen to our last selection. This is Rush with One Little Victory. What I love about this is that it's similar to our first example where you've got a, a typical single bass drum drummer in Neil Peart who really uses those double bass drums more so for uh, those really cool syncopated fills that he does. So uh, he's, he's even, he's, he's more of a, he's more of a double bass drum player than Ian Pace, but in this exact instance with One Little Victory, he's doing very much what Ian did on Fireball, which is I'm going to actually come up with a uh, a drum, you know, quote unquote riff uh, that, that has double bass drumming central to it. So he doesn't do this very often, but he did it here. And the whole interesting idea is that he had gone through all these tragedies uh, we're making a new album. Is it going to happen? Is it not? Uh, is Neil coming back? Let's tentatively make some music and see what happens. And they came up with the Vapor Trails album, which very funny thing has happened recently. Um, we did an episode. I did a, an episode of Contrarians, uh, our worst album edition with Ryan Murphy. You can go look at that on YouTube. And it got a lot of heat um, because, you know, his his sort of argument was that the the worst Rush album is the first Rush album because Neil's not on it and he's young and it's generational. We went into this whole debate about generational stuff. But the reason I bring this up is is that um, Vapor Trails came in really low. Uh, you know, a lot of people complained about a lot of different Rush albums. So it's interesting. A lot of people, they don't talk about it very much, but a lot of people don't like a lot of Rush albums. <laughs> and uh, and Vapor Trails is one of those. Um, but I, I quite like Vapor Trails and I thought they came up with almost like a new kind of music on it. Uh, but anyways... The, the interesting thing is this really cool drum part that Neil comes up with to start off one little victory. And, and then it's over and then the song goes, it goes to a different place. So it really is a welcome back Neil moment. Uh, you know, the support from Getty and Alex on that moment and, and Neil doing this thing that has kind of a neat big band vibe to it uh, in a way. Um, and I also, uh, I like the way that, that, you know, two two albums earlier on Counterparts, he does a similar thing on Animate, uh, where he's coming up with a novel groove, uh, but still in a conservative sort of, you know, frame. But he comes up with this cool groove to start off uh, this Animate song. And here he is doing it again on One Little Victory. Uh, let's see if I, I've got, uh, begins with a record, uh, the idea of touring again. Yeah, I, this is uh, something I think uh, I might have taken this out of my Rush book, out of my Driven book, an apt opener, sensible enough lead single. There's a conceptual and sonic uniformity across the album that really allows um, for any of them as candidates and none at the same time. One Little Victory begins the record on a hopeful note before Moody and introspectance introspection sets in the whole record was a lattice work of little victories one supporting the next and on 
uh, into the idea of touring again and yet more records. The song at the pole position also makes sense given that it's a bit of a showcase for Neil, uh, even if he cites a certain amount of anger and confusion in the part. He really cooks up something interesting using double bass drums as an extra treat. The plan was for Neil to insert this part of the back end, but Getty cajoled Neil into opening the record solo style. So that's kind of cool. So it's he's opening in, in a sense with the drum solo. Uh, Getty had talked about, you know, put putting it, uh, or, or he had he had wanted it to put it at the end, and Getty talked him into putting it at the beginning. Kind of interesting. Um, so there you go. Uh, a few honorable mentions I wanted to mention, and again, I really didn't want to go into this in a big way uh, because I have uh, some other possibly even more interesting drum things because they're they're a little you know it's going to make some connections that we we've, we've not talked about before maybe no one's talked about uh, but some honorable mentions motorhead overkill of course is the is the uh you know the double bass drum drumming throughout crocus headhunter is a little bit of one of these uh you know frantic fast beat uh flourishes at the beginning of a song so i thought that really kind of does line up with a lot of these and of course judas priest again with painkiller you know that's the hello to scott travis and he's doing this really interesting uh, you know, massive drum thing to start off the Painkiller album, to start off the new era of the band, so to speak. Uh, well, it wasn't much of a new era because it only lasted one album. And uh, then there was another era, the Ripper era, right? Uh, but essentially, Painkiller is uh, is Exciter, you know, 2.0 kind of thing. Uh, so that's one that fits. Another one that a lot of people don't really remember or think about too much, Iron Maiden Gangland. Uh, that's kind of the same sort of thing, uh, Clive Burr. And then another one that fits absolutely cozily, gauzily into this whole thing, uh, very much like the Crocus Headhunter one or Exciter, um, but into the new wave of British heavy metal is uh, Saxon This Town Rocks. Uh, technically not an intro because I think Biff talks first and then we're into this big hello from uh, from this dominant uh, drummer joining the band, Nigel Glockler. He was on the live album, but this is him really introducing himself at just like just like Cozy Powell, just like Les Binks, uh, this whole idea of... Um, we have this great drummer. Let's show him off to people, just like Scott Travis kind of thing. So this town rocks is definitely, definitely uh, one of those as well. Um, I, I'm I'm tempted to mention more here, but but I'm gonna save some of this other stuff for another episode because it goes in a different place. We're kind of getting shorter and shorter. Um, conceptually speaking, our drum hook episode was something that was kind of a drum thing throughout. Our intro episode is more like, uh, you know, fairly extensive, long drum intros. Um, but I think next episode, we're going to get shorter and shorter and mention some drum things that are, um, that are brief, but, but have the same sort of combination of intro in most cases, maybe all cases they're intros, um, but intros and hookiness uh, to go along at the same time. Uh, wanted to mention also, got got a neat letter from Mick Phelan who says, uh, who comments on the last episode about the hooks. Another cool episode. I apologize that I'm not on Twitter. You make a great point, Re Lars. He's not running around the kit like Mooney. However, it's his hooky drum parts that are definitely in the drum along category. Bob Rock must be given credit for truly harnessing that through the never uh, through harnessing that through the never is propulsive driven and propelled by Lars enter Sandman as you noted has those fizzy hi-hat flourishes that definitely are earwormy the untrained ear cannot uh, cannot hear them 
Uh, as for sad but true, is there a more recognizable drum hook, a repeated motif, not necessarily a fill in the last 30 years of metal? Question mark. Think about the drum lick before each verse. Gagaka gaka. I often think you can tell a competent drummer by the way they can boombox a drum lick verbally. Certain beats become part of our DNA, as you note with Poor Tom. Speaking of Bob Rock, he harnesses hook drums, of course, on Dr. Feelgood. But, he, but think about that great Blue Murder debut. Carmine plays more fills on that album than the rest of his career. Interesting. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that album, Mick, again. Uh, Sex Child tilts on a hooky drum pattern, culminating in a drum crescendo of fills after Sykes' guitar solo. It's almost overkill, but not quite. On the edge, about to lose control like all great metal. I was thrilled with your selection from Queen's Jazz. Uh, for that, I picked more of that jazz, right? A drum hook is a distinctive X-factor element that a drummer adds that elevates a song. Nico's use of cowbell in the oft-maligned yet truly hooky Can I Play With Madness illustrates this. As we know, Charlie Watts lifted his, his hi-hat hand uh, to accentuate the backbeat. Roger Taylor has an almost symphonic texture on every Queen song. Is it every album? I'll have to listen back. Every time the snare hits that backbeat, he opens the hi-hat again. Pretty interesting uh, observation. Again, the untrained ear would not detect this. It adds a unique flavor, yet another unique musical element to one of the most original bands ever. We go back to Queen again and again, partly because of Roger's hookiness. Your song was perfect, uh, was a perfect choice. His hi-hat trick is startling uh, to the fore and spot on. Let's not forget drum tricks or hooks that are not elevated. They were spoken about by drummers in drum stores across the globe. Vinny was one of the most revered drummers in the world for a while. The drum hook, uh, the almost impossible to play double bass drum pattern that Pepper's becoming immediately gets our attention. Isn't great music supposed to halt us in our tracks? I remember buying cymbals in Music Maker in Dublin and guys in the store waxing lyrical about how Vinny had upped his game on Far Beyond Driven, hooky to the max. Drum hook gods one and all, Lars, Carmine, Charlie, Roger, and Vinny. Keep doing what you do, Martin. Mick Phelan. Very nice, Mick. That was really cool. Uh, that was that was some good stuff there. Um, let's see. Um, well, we've kind of gone on long. Um, I just wanted to mention a few things from the Facebook. Uh, Steve Polari uh, mentioned Joy Division. Love will tear us apart and Dead Souls. Stephen Morris is a very hooky drummer, and I think it was in uh, an influence on plenty of new wave acts. In the 80s, uh, Joe Becht says, just watched an instructional video on Tommy Lee, and I would argue that most of the band's songs are built around Tommy's hooks because he is by far the most talented member of Motley Crue. Steve, uh, Steve Bellow mentions, uh, let's see, um, another one bites the dust. This was a great episode. My head is swimming with lots of drum hooks, so here's my choices. He says, uh, Tommy Lee, kickstart my heart. Tommy Thompson, Bang a Gong, John Bonham, Immigrant Song, Michael DeRoger, Barracuda, Dave Grohl, My Hero. That's a really good one. My Hero is a, a good one for a, for a hook. Uh, Joe Lutz also says several songs by Foo Fighters come to mind, most notably All My Life. Taylor Hawkins is a monster drummer and always brings something unique and interesting. You Fool No One, Deep Purple. Uh, the song is one long drum hook with Ian Pace's kit work. Uh, let's see. Denim and Leather from Saxon, says Blaze Barshaw, or Rock Candy from Montrose. These are ones I'm going to talk about in future episodes because, again, uh, we're going we're going to go to a different place on this drum thing. Um, listening now, a hook in the drum, central to the song. Yes, great point. And 
band definition yet. Yes, those rhythmic unisons with drums and the guitars in Escape is a good example. And you asked for more examples by Lars. And the first one that comes to mind is two pairs of drum hits that are rhythmic unison with the guitars in the opening riff of For Who the Bell Tolls. Nolan Stoltz, who's done a really cool analysis of Black Sabbath, really scholarly, um, he mentions in the air tonight, but um, uh, someone brings it up and maybe he's just agreeing. I can't remember. I can't find this here, but I thought this was really cool. Bill Ward, um, the, the little jazzy hi-hat thing going along with the vocal uh, on on War Pigs is a, is a total drum hook. But talk about a simple drum hook, right? It's just, just hi-hat uh, and then opening the hi-hat and then closing again kind of thing. Uh, let's see. Jeffrey Sargent mentions a Rush the Weapon. Uh, let's see. Jonas Siedler says, love the episode and I'm a drummer myself. Totally agreeing on the stuff about Lars. He is definitely a, not a technical drummer by any means, but still kind of musical and hooky in his fills and access. But I also think he tends to overplay in the songs with all the Lars stuff that's going on. Songs that came to mind were Venom in League with Satan and Metal Church, Merciless Onslaught. Interesting. Um, Another drummer that I love for his hooky licks is Clive Burr, Running Free and Run to the Hills. Again, Clive's going to come up in future episodes if I go down this drum route some more. Um, yeah, let's see. Don, Don, the, Don the Chaldean also says also, uh, can a guitar and the drums have the same hook? If so, maybe Machine Gun by Hendrix Band of Gypsies would count. Uncertain as I'm starting to think a catchy drum rhythm is the same thing as a hook. Uh, interesting. Uh, also, Don says, what about that percussive instrument throughout Steely Dan's Do It Again? That sounds like a scraping chuka chuka. I know what it's called. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't know what it's called. Yeah, there. here we get to the War Pigs thing. Uh, Gino Sigismonde mentions Soundgarden Jesus Christ pose, Alice in Chains No Excuses, Nirvana Scentless Apprentice, a uh, bunch of grunge things all together. So there you go. Pretty cool stuff. Um, Wow. Let's stop there. Again, I have more to, to say on this drum stuff. Um, and, and there's going to be some interesting comparisons made because I've got this whole list with compartments and stuff. Um, if you want to support me and this show, uh, as you know, I only do the Ko-Fi thing. That's the, that's the only way I'm doing any financial uh, augmentation to this show. Um, so you can hit that red support button at ko-fi.com slash martinpapa. Buy me a coffee or a pint. This week, I'd like to thank Andy at Black Sugar Transmission, Joe Beck at Pal Air Expediting, Bruce Campbell again, as always, Andrew Clark again, very generous, uh, just like last week, Andrew. Thank you very much. Tim Derling, uh, who I've got set up for uh, some Contrarians episodes uh, coming up. We're going to be talking about Yes Union on Yes's worst album um, coming up. So you can always check out our Contrarians show uh, on uh, on YouTube. Um, but yes, and he's got the 8-track book coming out. Very cool. Um, David Fisher, uh, Jeremy Jeremy French, Darren Kasabowski, Neil Miller, uh, Augustin Garcia de Paredes, and Steve Polari. And as always, boy, guess what? I've actually, uh, it's, uh, it's early January, 2022, as I'm saying this, um, you know, no new books have come out for a little while, but guess what? I've got actually six books, uh, that I've had finished, uh, that are on to the next stage. So there will be six books, you know, I think all six of them, actually one of them might come out in early 2023, but I, but I'm pretty sure five of them, uh, are all coming out, uh, in 2022. So that's, uh, that's all done. Don't know what I'm going to do next. Maybe, maybe some more art, maybe some more drawing and some more painting. I've got all these art supplies. I got to start using them. Right. Um, so there you go. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode all about drums. As I say, um, uh, apologies if I've overlapped a little bit with uh, with the double bass drum episode, maybe even a little bit with the hook episode. But um, I think we talked about some new stuff here uh, as well. So there you go. Go play some drums. Go listen to some drums. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. <laughs>